Okay. Um, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I told Steve Foltz um, this morning that this passage should not be handled by amateurs. And um, it is, um, I mean, this is just so big. And there's just so much hidden in every word that is just, it, well, I have, uh, I was telling my friends, here are two copies of a lecture, and then here's a new one. So we'll see what happens. So anyway, we'll, anyway, okay. So as Lori said, we are halfway through, 12 lessons behind, 12 lessons to go. And um, I just think this is the most beautiful place for us to take a rest along the way. Because this is kind of like having a Christmas gift to take home with us, to just really meditate on as we're at the Christmas season. So regardless, I know we planned it not for this purpose, but because of it being halfway and we needed two extra weeks, but it's just God's sovereign grace that we get to meditate over the Christmas season about our Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. So let me pray for us and we'll begin. Father, um, Jesus as our great high priest, it's just an astounding, most beautiful, amazing passage. And I just pray, Lord, that in these feeble hands and in this hard heart that you would use me as an instrument of your grace. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I'm kind of going to do this. Before we look at our passage for today, um, I just want to do a brief overview of some of the big things that we've been learning about the Jewish faith. And I think this is going to help us as we um, enter into the stark contrast that the author is going to show us between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of the one coming according to the order of Melchizedek. So, what are some of the things we've learned about the Jewish faith? Well, one of the things, and I'm summarizing big things, is that the rhythm of religious life for the Jewish people was centered around the temple, sacrificed, and the priesthood. And that was true generation after generation after generation. That was the heartbeat of, of Jewish life. And I don't think we can imagine how central the sacrificial system was in the Jewish culture. There was this continual order before them, and the order that they had before them was explicit in the law. And so here's what it was, basically. I mean, it's pages and pages and pages and pages, but basically it was this. Sin required a sacrifice. And in order to present a sacrifice, it had to be presented to a priest. So you had to bring a sacrifice to a priest. And if you brought a sacrifice to a priest, he was a Levitical priest because that was the only line that a priest could come from. There was no other. You could not come from another line. You had to come from the line, <coughs> excuse me, from the tribe of Levi. 
And so here's what would happen. The sinner would bring this sacrifice and present it to this Levitical priest, and he would offer the sacrifice. And this process went on and on and on. And it just, it just kept coming. That, that was the law. And there was no forgiveness without a sacrifice. And so it just kept going. And this process remained steadfast for hundreds and hundreds of years, day after day after day. From the time of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, this was the way things were. And at the writing of this amazing letter to the Hebrews, it remained the same. This was, this was the way of life if you were a Jew and living as a Jew. Now, I started reading before I did this. I, I just was reading in Leviticus about the various sacrifices that were prescribed by law and what they covered and what kind of animal you had to offer for what sin and how the priests prepared to offer that sacrifice and how you handled the blood from that sacrifice once it had to be offered. Did you just put it around the altar? Did you sprinkle it? Did you throw it on the altar? It was all of these things. And my head, I'm not kidding you. You don't know how many things, how complicated this is. And it was it was just never ending. And some of the sacrifices were offered for individuals. And some were for families. And some was for the whole nation. And of course, the center of all these sacrifices was the holiest of day, the Day of Atonement. And that was the day when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. But... When he entered into the Holy of Holies, what did he have to do? He had to take a sacrifice for himself. He had to sacrifice a bull and take that blood in. And then he had to come out and he had to sacrifice a goat. That seems appropriate, doesn't it? A goat for us. But he had to sacrifice a goat and take it in and offer it for the people. Now, there's a lot more about that, and we're going to be talking about that in a few weeks. But that's how it was. It was all very complicated, it was all very bloody, and it never stopped. The sacrificial system was always before the people. It was ordained by God. And one commentator says it was placed at the very center and heart of Jewish national life. Whatever was going on in the lives of Jews, what they saw before them were these unsavory, ceasing sacrifice of animals, and the never-ending glow of the fire on the altar of sacrifice. And there is no doubt, this commentator says, that what God was doing is he was burning into their hearts of every person an awareness of their own sin and the need to have something done to fix it. Unfortunately, it wasn't going to happen with the Jewish system. Now, just a a quick reminder of the original purpose of this sermon epistle that we have before us that we've been studying is that it was written because there were some Jewish Christians, Jews who had become Christians, who, because of the great persecution they were experiencing and 
and they were experiencing great persecution. Some had had their land taken. Some had had their businesses closed. They were being afflicted in many, many ways. And they were experiencing separation from family that had gone on for generations. Their family had been Jews, and they had walked out of that. And so they were experiencing all of this. And so... They, but there was something in some of them that they, because of this persecution, they just wanted to go back. They just wanted life to be how it was. And perhaps they wanted to experience, perhaps they missed all the vividness of the sacrificial system. And so they were, they were wavering and thinking of returning to their heritage and to the law and to sacrifices and to the ever-changing of priests. Because it wasn't always the same priest, was it? Because they died. And then another one would come in, and then another one would come in. And Hebrews was written or, or preached, we, there's confusion about that, to cause these Jewish Christians to see the glory of what they would be leaving and the emptiness of what they would be returning to and the eternal consequences of such a choice. And chapter 7 is an earth-shattering look at the center of the center of the Jewish faith and why it was failing. And the author of our commentary Let's Study Hebrews, writes this as we lead into chapter 7. He says, God is not erratic, and he never acts impulsively, but he often surprises and perplexes his people. And this author goes on to say that at times, though, his people fail to notice indications that he has given them of what he is going to do. And that's an incredibly accurate picture of what is before us in all of chapter 7. And the point the author is making is, the center of Jewish life, the sacrificial system, was never meant to be the final answer. It was given for a time, it was a holding place, until the great high priest arrived. And that priest would come according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, so, in order to set the stage, I'm just going to briefly review what we talked about last week, and this is going to be really brief. God did set a marker before the people of what he would do in the future, but they missed it. And it's not surprising, I guess, it was just a few verses. It was very shadowy, what was given. And Melchizedek came of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of the God Most High. There it is. That's the key. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed Abram and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's the marker. That's the marker they missed. And it would be almost a thousand years before David wrote Psalm 110, which would again name Melchizedek. And he gave some more information, and this is what he said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews in verses 1 through 10 that we studied last week shows the superiority of Melchizedek to the Levitical priests. And that marker was laid down before ever the law was given. And the author is using Melchizedek 
as a type of Christ. And we, you talked about this last week, but just to hold this before us, what is a type? Well, it is a symbol of sorts which gives shadows. It gives these far-reaching shadows. These, it gives these shadows of far-reaching truths, expansive truths. It isn't the real thing, but it's pointing to the real thing. And it's pointing to truths about our Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek appears on the biblical stage for a mere moment. But he leaves these amazing hints of a greater king priest to come. Now, on your handout, I've given you just the high points of things that Melchizedek uh, represented, the hints he gave. But we're not going to talk about those because of time. But um, so we have to move on and come to our, our beautiful, amazing passage for today. And here's what I hope you saw. The author of Hebrews does not hold back. He throws down the gauntlet and he is basically saying to these Jewish Christians who are thinking about leaving, he is saying, don't look to Aaron and don't look to all the priests of the past. No, look to the new order of priesthood the order according to Melchizedek. Because the Melchizedekian order broke the mold of the Levitical priesthood before it ever began. While Levi was still in the loins of Abraham, God says there's going to be another order. You're going to have this order for a period of time, but it's not going to be the order. And in chapter 7, we see why a different order of priesthood was needed. It had always been needed. It would always be needed. And God knew that. This was not a surprise, but this was the gift that had waited in the wings. So, on your handout, I've given you, um, we're going to look at five large truths about our great high priest from verses 11 through 28. And I've broken them down into these sections that probably you all saw in your commentary. So, the first section that we're going to look to are, are um, it's we find in verses 11 through 14. And the headline of that is that Jesus has broken through all the barriers to bring us to perfection. And the first thing that we need to understand is what the word perfection means. And I, I printed this out because I think this is really, really a, a good definition. A.W. Pink puts it this way. He writes, Perfection means the bringing of something to that completion or of condition for which it was designed. I love that. I love that. He's saying that if, if someone is brought to, to perfection, it means they are going to come to that point for which they were ultimately designed. And he goes on and he says, doctrinally, perfection refers to the producing of some way for a full and final relationship between God and man, because that's what we were designed for. So this would be an unchanging standing in the favor and blessing of God upon us, which only Christ could secure. Jesus broke down all the barriers of the Levitical priesthood because the Levitical priesthood could not touch this. The Levitical priesthood did not have the freight to do this. This was something only Christ could, could, could secure 
because you see the Levitical priesthood could not produce perfection for themselves. They couldn't provide a perfect sacrifice, nor could they bring about perfection in those they served. So there was a need for another priest to come, not of the order of Aaron, but of the order of Melchizedek. I'm having trouble talking. Okay, something completely new, which brought about a change in the law, because why? The law demanded that priests come from the tribe of Levi. My friends, the priesthood of old was all about genealogy. You couldn't break out. There was no way to break out. When a priest died, he, the next priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. You couldn't break out. That was the law. That was the way it was. But when Jesus came, he came from the tribe of Judah, the tribe from which kings came. And he broke down the barrier of the law that, de- that the law demanded, and, he com- and a completely new priest came from the tribe of Judah. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi, but he was a priest nonetheless. And this priest could restore us to the perfection for which we were designed. Then, number two, in verses 15 through 19, he is an eternal priest. He is the priest who has arisen according to the order of Melchizedek. He comes from a different tribe, and that's not based on... Uh, It is not based on the legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but he has arisen by the power of an indestructible life. How different from other high priests. Because the type of Melchizedek Melchizedek had no genealogy. There was no beginning, and that is what is being shown here. Christ had an indestructible life. He was a priest forever. There is no need for succession for this priest, for our high priest lives forever and ever. And the author of Hebrews next completely obliterates the purpose of the law because he says a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The question lying before us is, what purpose did the law have if it could make nothing purpose, perfect? The law couldn't restore you to God. And so we needed, here's another reason we needed this new high priest. We needed a different priest from a different order because the old order couldn't make us perfect, but also because these priests died. They did not live forever and ever. And, and then the question lying before us then, why could the law not restore us? It didn't have the power. But on the other hand, the author goes on to say, but there is a better hope that is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that hope is the eternal Christ, the one with the indestructible life, and he will never change. And he can make us perfect. And he can provide a sacrifice that will forever make us clean. And thus we can draw near to God. My friends, the picture of the old covenant was you can't draw near. You can't come into the Holy of Holies. Oh, you can have a representative go once a year, but he has to try a cord around his ankle because he might die while he was in there and no one else can go in but not so with Christ he brings us near he invites us to come in all the way he says come all the way in as the author has touched on in an earlier part he invites us to come boldly into the heavenly throne room we couldn't come near it before but he says come near come all the way in 
He is a new high priest whose blood actually takes away our sins forever. It is not the blood of animals that flows over and over. It's a one-time offering. But he does more than that. He doesn't just take your sin away. He gives you his righteousness. He clothes you in his righteousness. So he just keeps saying, come closer, come closer, come closer. But there's still more. In verses 20 to 22, we see that he is the oath-receiving priest, and thus he is the guarantor of a better covenant. You see, Jesus' priesthood is promised and assured by God's oath. We've looked at God's oath before. We know God cannot lie, and when God gives an oath, it is final and nothing can change. Jesus' priesthood is promised and assured by that oath. The priests of old had no such oath, but this one was made a priest by the certainty of God's oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The sons of Aaron died. They couldn't continue forever. Not so this priest, for, for on God's oath, he has promised that his son will be a priest forever. But there's more, because on the other side is that Jesus is to be the guarantor of a better covenant, that unchangeable covenant that we talked about a few weeks ago. Remember, when the animals were laid out and only the torch passed through the pieces, Abraham couldn't pass through the pieces. He couldn't do anything. If he passed through those pieces and he said he was going to do it, he would fail. He couldn't keep his promise. But this is the guarantor that that will happen. We will fail. He knows it, and he's already paid for it. He will guarantee the covenant for which he has paid the full price, and that was his death. Nothing else could be demanded of him. Nothing else can be demanded of us because it is finished. But that's not all. In verses 23 through 25, he is a priest who saves to the uttermost. And the contrast here is one of the most beautiful because it's so pastoral. In this picture, we have left behind blood and sacrifice. And we come to a priest who carries our burdens, who seeks always our eternal joy and peace, a priest who understands our every weakness, and he overcomes them every one. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Don't you think it's interesting how often this pastor emphasized Jesus lives forever. He is our high priest forever. And I think in part that is because we need that deep security. He's not going to change. There is nothing about him is going to change. He's not going to give up on us. He's not going to turn from us. He is always going to be there because God has given an oath that it is so. And Jesus has guaranteed that the covenant promises will be fulfilled for he stands as our surety and he has paid every price that we should have paid. He has an indestructible life to further the promise and now we have the certainty that he saves saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. In every possible way, he has removed barriers and he has brought you in. You will not be refused entrance. 
You see, here is our Lord Jesus praying for us. And it says he always lives to make intercession. Do you know what that means? It means that the Lord of the universe prays before God for you and me. And my friends, his prayers are never, ever refused. He sees our needs and he knows what to perfectly pray for us. You can ask me to pray for you. I'll be happy to do that. But I can't read your heart. I can only pray what you ask me to pray. I can pray before him. I can say, Lord Jesus, I pray for this person. But he knows everything. He knows exactly what you need. He knows what to pray. He knows how to ask these things. We can trust him for that which we cannot see or imagine. He knows all things perfectly. He is sovereign God. He sees the beginning from the end. He will ask things for us that we may not want him to ask from this point of view. But it's always perfect. It is always perfect. He knows exactly what you need. One other thing to mention is this, and I think sometimes we think of it like this, is that Jesus is in the throne room and he's before the Father and he's just, oh, Father, please, 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 please. It's not like that. It's not like this. For the Father is the one who sent his Son on this perilous journey of our redemption. And as Jesus sits at God's right hand with his nail-pierced hands so clearly visible, do we dare to think that the Father would refuse him? Do we think that the Father is, has to be begged to answer our high priest prayer? The promise is that from all eternity, our names will be upon the lips of Jesus. And anything that he prays for us, will be answered. He is our praying priest. As I was studying this, I came across something one commentator said that, um, and he was expressing his dismay that the Catholic Church, when they show a cross, it's always a cross with the body of the crucified Jesus on it. And he explained that that's not so in the Protestant Church because we always display an empty cross. Because, you see, our Jesus is not there. He accomplished that. That is finished and he's gone to heaven. And his present ministry is at the right hand of God interceding for his beloved. And finally, we come to the last glorious picture that the preacher has to give us. And it's just the glory and the perfection of the Son. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. He was perfectly, uniquely qualified to be our high priest because he had to be without sin. One commentator writes, perhaps a better translation would be, such a high priest was fitted to us. He was fitted perfectly for the predicament in which we find ourselves. No other could have saved us. There was no other. He was perfectly holy. He was God in the flesh. He was completely blameless. No one could bring a charge against him. He was unstained. There was no tarnish in him, inside or out. He was wholly pure. 
Jesus, therefore, was the only one fitted to stand before God on our, on our behalf, but the preacher is not finished. It says he was separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. My friends, Jesus experienced every type of temptation, and with every temptation he faced, he learned to say no. He never said yes to a temptation. He learned perfect obedience every time, no matter what the temptation was. Jesus loved God more than anything, and he was always able to say no. Even when he was face to face with the cross and bearing our sins, and he knew that he would lose the Father's face, he said yes because his Father asked it of him. No wonder he was exalted above the heavens. He has He had no need to offer sacrifices daily like the high priest of old, first for his own sins and then for the people, since he did offer himself up for us once and for all. It was indeed fitting we should have such a high priest who was in infinite ways unlike those the law appointed in their weakness. The word of the oath which came later shows that he is our perfect high priest forever. What a high priest we have. And must one must wonder that those original hearers, when they heard this, did they fall on their face after hearing the preacher present this great high priest to them? Is there any possible way that they could have returned to Judaism? Is there any possible way that they would essentially cry out, this Jesus is not enough. I want a goat sacrificed for me. I need to see blood poured out on that altar. They wouldn't have gone back, not if they belonged to Jesus. Because if you put your faith in this great high priest, there is nothing, nothing, nothing that will ever separate you from the love of Jesus, love of God in Christ Jesus. So my friends, this is the gift we have before us, an eternal high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. No one is able to sympathize with our weaknesses like Jesus. He has experienced every temptation yet without sin. He knows perfectly the power of Satan's accusations, and he says, be gone. It's finished. He knows the power of this world and the weakness of our flesh, but, oh, my friends, he has passed through the heavens. The veil is torn and he sits at God's right hand. He has opened the way for you to draw near to God. He has every power. He has grace upon grace upon grace that he just longs to pour out upon us day after day after day. He knows exactly what you need, and he will work everything together for good, and good is your perfection, and it will happen. And someday he's coming again, and he's going to proudly parade you before the throne of God and say, this one is mine. How thankful we can be for this great high priest. Let's pray. Father, um, I can't believe your love for us. And I thank you for Jesus, our great high priest. We pray in his name.
Amen.